I'm Bryce Butler from Access Ventures, and this is More Than Profit, a show where I talk with founders, investors, entrepreneurs, and leaders of all kinds about living and working with purpose, how they do it, and why. My guest this week is super familiar. In fact, we've worked together now for seven years. And even though I thought it'd be fun to interview him and share his story with you, I have to admit that I was struggling to figure out where even to begin. Ben Terry is wicked smart and a true creative genius, able to translate complex things with ease. And I've seen him tirelessly develop next generation creatives, and he really knows how to bring out their best. A true leader and a person that I can say has shaped what Axis Ventures is, and has pushed me even to be a better person and leader. I added him to this season's lineup because of his unique perspective on the creator economy, but also because of the exciting new investment strategy that he's been building over the past 12 months that he's finally ready to introduce to the world. Let's act like we don't know each other the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> no, but this one's actually, I intentionally put this one in this, this season um, of More Than Profit, obviously, because we're talking about funds and strategies to both achieve financial performance and invest with impact in different asset classes. So been a really cool pleasure to talk with different folks. Um, last week's episode, Candace Brackeen, and looking at gender equity, uh, founders of color, LGBTQ founders across the Midwest. This week, kind of shifting to creators. Um, You'll love to see it. <laughs> and I've been really, I don't know if excited is the right word, but excited to kind of chat with Ben, because Ben and I have worked together for seven years now at mm -hmm. Access Ventures. And the journey's been really, really cool to watch um, kind of from the early days of AV, uh, just as an organization, but also even the role that Ben has played at Access Ventures over the years. But I'm going to rewind the clock because I like to start first with the person a little bit. So Ben grew up in Georgia. Yeah. Georgia uh, boy. Georgia. Yeah. And made my way to Kentucky. <laughs> came to Kentucky. But uh, talk to me a little bit about your upbringing in Georgia. Like you, you moved around quite a bit. Yeah. But never really outside the state of Georgia. What was the reason for the, for all the different uh, the movings? You know, the reason we didn't move outside of the state of Georgia was out of loyalty for the state. <laughs> no, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, my so my parents, my mom was a, um, in the education, teaching, working, doing daycare licensing. Uh, so she kind of taught taught a lot of grace. And then my dad's a prison warden in the state of Georgia. And so that was mainly the reason we kind of moved uh, within Georgia to different cities um, was because of his role and job of, of kind of, he actually kind of went into underperforming prisons and uh, who were not like, you know, treating inmates well or, you know, not following protocols and he would come in and reform it and make it better and so that really required every two or three years uh once you get made things right he would then kind of pick up and then go to the next underperforming prison and so moved around a lot within the state of georgia you know from north georgia to south georgia middle georgia um, and really got to experience a lot of different uh communities and backgrounds um because of that but then also our house was, uh, you know, it was provided by the state. And so I always lived across the street from the prison. So not only was I kind of learning about these different communities and cities that we were moving into, but my neighbors were also uh, inmates. And so there was relationships that were kind of built um, 
with the, the, the inmates who would, you know, come over and help out um, in doing things uh, to take care of the, the state house and property. And so, yeah, it was a very interesting upbringing. And uh, I think it was very formative for my brothers and I. And you did, I have to think that on some level for a long time that you didn't really think much about, like that was just- oh, I didn't know anything different. Yeah. Like it was- When did it become something where you're like, oh, this is, this is not what every other person experiences- I think in high school when friends would come over and, you know, we'd be playing basketball or something at my house and I would have like a state issued uh, prison basketball goal in my yard. But then also you would see across the street, you know, the the prison guards and, you know, it's just a very intense environment if you're not used to it. And uh, I think that was like, you know, and my dad has just being doing the work that he kind of does there's just a sense of like respect when people come over and then they're meeting a prison warden for the first time i mean there's obviously like the way in which a media and films have kind of portrayed prison wardens and then there's kind of like my dad who's kind of like a big teddy bear but then also you can tell <laughs> you know he knows how to take care of business type of thing and so there's always like that's when i realized oh this is very different and people are really fascinated because not there's not many opportunities to get that close or experience like the prison life. Um, My first kind of like walk into the prison and kind of tour, so to speak, was uh, when I was in middle school, my dad kind of gave us the, here's what dad does at work. And so we kind of walked through the prison and, and that was a great scare them straight program. And so I knew from (laughs) then on out that uh, I wanted to make sure I tried not to do things that would put me in that situation. So middle school, high school, how how many different schools? Uh, well, my brothers actually transitioned more. I went to two different middle schools and then one high, one high school that was outside of Savannah, Georgia. Okay. Yeah. And, and it that? was a really big switch. My middle school, I went from a predominantly white middle school, upper middle class to a predominantly African-American Hispanic high school, uh, where I was more of the minority. And then it was also an underperforming school as well and so that gave me i mean just two different experiences um and really thankful but then was also able to really see uh the privilege in which i had um for one to be able to get out of that community to go to the university of georgia but then also and then also just like the opportunities that i had were just different than some of the other opportunities that people uh that i went to school with because of you know, the underperformingness or the societal um, issues that are there that, you know, that don't help all people access the same type of benefits that I was able to access. So are there, are there a couple of moments? Cause I think you and I have talked over the years. And so mm-hmm. I remember some stories that you told me, but I think I'd be curious for your perspective growing up. Are there a couple of moments that were formative and you're just thinking around people oh, and communities? Man. You know, if there's one that stands out more than anything is there was this in high school, I played on the basketball team. We went to, there was this park where we went to go play basketball at. And it was like, if you can make it at this park, you gained a lot of respect. And, you know, you're in your high school and there's a bunch of kids and it was packed on Friday nights. And one night things kind of got out of hand and a fight broke out and cops showed up. And I remember jumping into my car and then some of the my basketball teammates who were all black jumped into the car with me and then we got pulled over not too far along leaving the basketball court. 
And what had occurred was me being asked to come outside of the car and then asking me if I was okay. Mm. And those in South Georgia, those type of moments is like, I can totally see why we're in the situation that we're in now, because like that was, man, pre 20, 2005. So I mean, almost 20 years, you know, that happened. And so I can see like, yeah, like, you know, that stuff looks different. And that was kind of very formative to me that people look at people differently and, Mm. you know, I don't know. It's really sad. And I think that also kind of changes your perspective of just like, yeah, being a white male, there's a lot of privilege that comes to that, but being mindful and aware of how you're going to use and leverage that's really important. So, so fast forward, you, you find yourself at the university of Georgia. What go dogs. (laughs) I knew, I knew that was coming. Uh, what did you study and, and why, what were the reasons behind kind of your, your field of choice? Oh man, I changed my major like every semester. Yeah, typical college student. Yeah. Um, I went from like, I think I started off pre-med because I worked at a doctor's office Mm -hmm. in high school and I was like, this is the track for me. Um, But then I also realized, okay, I went to an underperforming high school. Like I, my highest level of math in high school was trig and it was like algebra, geometry, trig, and then there was no more math. Huh. There was no pre-cal or calculus. And so when I got to Georgia, there was a very like rude awakening of like, wow, other students are so much farther along than I was. And so that- Just because it was available. Just because it was available. Hmm. Um, You didn't even have that opportunity. Yeah, that's right. And so there were certain things about me being at Georgia, which were really great because there was a lot of opportunities to try to figure out what I wanted to do. Um, But I didn't really fully know what I was capable of doing because I felt a step behind from some of my other peers because they were coming from Atlanta or other larger schools. And so I spent a lot of the first two years trying to figure out what am I good at? What am I passionate about? What can I just not do just because I'm not prepared for those level of classes? Um, And science and math in particular, one of the two areas that were really hard for me to kind of grow in. And so I went from like pre-med and then I wanted to go into computer science because I was really interested in tech. Um, and then when I realized science and math was like the two areas that were tough for me, I, st- I then started to transition into like the arts and design side. And so I started to dabble in new media. Uh, but then I was also really fascinated with how people think my thought was, okay, if I can't go the tech route and if robots and AI does take over, what's the one thing they can't do that I could possibly still be good at? And that was like thinking and understanding humans. And so that's where I I started studying a little bit around philosophy. (laughs) It was all about job security to me at the time. (laughs) That's great. Okay, so so clearly Access Ventures, you know, if if somebody's listening to the podcast, they're familiar, I think, on some level with the work that we do. around building more inclusive and creative economy. You've been around since the beginning. Um, yeah. And, you know, I would actually say, you know, one of the founding members of, of the vision and the team and kind of helping shape it. You know, we did stuff before then, but it was kind of ad hoc, experimental, mm-hmm. and we kind of became a thing Yeah. Uh, about the time you came into to Access Ventures. So I got to ask, what, what attracted you to Access Ventures? Mm-hmm. And yeah. and what did what po- 
possibilities and opportunities did you see for yourself uh, in those early days that you're like, hmm, this is interesting, mm-hmm. given what I think I'm possibly qualified to do and interested in? What, what were you excited to kind of step into? Yeah, this is almost like an interview, job interview question <laughs> to where you're like asking me seven years later, yeah, exactly. like, <laughs> why did you question? want to join? And Because uh, I think I would have said like, I, you know, I would give like a very job interview answer in the beginning. But I think what was interesting to me at the time was I really like building or starting new things. I like doing something new and different. And this felt very new and different to me. Um you know, I think one thing that was really exciting is like you had secured funding. And so it was kind of like choose your own adventure, so to speak. And the the mission and drive of like trying to, you know, increase access, particularly access to capital for all individuals and people so that they can flourish and thrive was really interesting. But, you know, one of the unique and interesting things for me at least in, in taking the job was you were really big on talking about storytelling in the arts. And so that was fascinating because it's like, okay, here's an opportunity to kind of tell stories of impact around the good work that we're doing to help increase access. But then also there's an opportunity at the same time to create that same type of impact by directly working with artists and creatives um, to help them thrive as well too. And so since that was embedded in the core at the beginning, um, and you were very open-handed, like, I don't know how we should do this, but I think we should do it. Uh, that became really interesting to me to kind of jump in and try to figure that out. Yeah. yeah it's interesting. You, you and I were talking last week about storytelling. Um, and it was more along the lines of like measuring impact. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of been the driver from the beginning. It's like some of it's kind of squishy. Yeah. Um, and a lot of it's qualitative or there's a lot of just complexity that people throw on it when it when it's like how do you measure impact yeah and i think i think fundamentally what we felt from the beginning is that you can't argue with the the stories right you know the the impact stories of people and communities and so if we can tell good stories if we can help people experience and see mm-hmm. that transformation in a person or community's life then that's a measure of impact. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I think that's still rooted in kind of some of that work. But I think what's been interesting is kind of over the years taking that principle of storytelling, but then also saying, okay, how do we, how do we better support the storytellers? Mm-hmm. Like, what does that look like? And I think yeah. that's where I've been, you know, super impressed with just you taking the ball and running with it. Yeah, um, I've tried like, to. <laughs> just, but I think it's it's just been really cool to kind of like. Because again, you you've heard me say before, I'm I am not. This is not my bailiwick. Mm-hmm. I see the the purpose and the value for it, but like, don't tell, don't give Bryce Butler the the keys of the kingdom on on creating that. So, but I think what's really interesting is you were able to kind of take the early days of of Access Ventures where we were doing very neighborhood specific stuff and saying, okay, great, what could we do at a neighborhood level, at a community level, that also has rooted within it, woven throughout it, this this idea of creativity, storytelling, the arts, and uh, and really kind of capture that as a part of of the overall strategy. Yeah, um, and I don't even know if there was much of a strategy in the beginning. Yeah, I would agree. You know, as <laughs> much as if it was like, man, like let's just go out there and try something. Yeah, I mean, because that first project we did, 
or, you know, that I did when I first came on was the paint by number where we kind of did a partnership with, we, we funded a local artist who lived in the neighborhood, um, Tyler Deep to kind of design his first ever mural. And then we were going to have the community within that neighborhood then participate painting by number and bringing it to life. And we worked with a bunch of different volunteers and it was really exciting, but we totally underestimated how long it was going to take. You know, I thought it was going to take like two days and it ended up taking like two or three months to actually kind of do. And so and then you're out there by yourself. I was out there by myself and, and my friend Michael Winters were just painting little squares all day and... It was awesome. I mean, that was that was a really I mean, really you did cool get time. Community members to participate. But, yeah, we did. But after the couple of days, it was like, okay, we got to finish this. That's right. That's right. Uh, and we had never done a mural before either. Um, but I think that's helpful, and I and I appreciate you saying that because um, I do think sometimes whether it's Access Ventures or other organizations, you look at it and like, man, there was so much great thoughtfulness and mm-hmm. a robust strategy, mm-hmm. and I I think we just made up a lot of stuff. Yeah. I think the things that stand out, yeah, the things that stand out is like choosing the right people to work with. Like we went, I mean, Tyler's a phenomenal designer. And then we worked with Michael Winters, who's a phenomenal artist that's done tons of community art projects. And they knew kind of like what it took and required to kind of do some of the stuff. And then each time we've done something different, we've kind of iterated or learned from that experience and let it play into kind of the next one. Um, so yeah, it was, it was, we were trying to fail fast. Mm-hmm. So then talk to me about like, so going through this, obviously mural projects, helping tell stories at Access Ventures, running marketing, small team. Um, what was it like for you on that journey? Kind of thinking through, like, I mean, cause I, you went from doing kind of these mural projects, trying to figure it out, failing fast into a pretty robust regional strategy with creative mornings and mm-hmm. really mobilizing for what the past six years, yeah. an army of volunteers, uh, in which, what is arguably one of the top chapters within creative mornings globally, yeah. um, to really mobilize and motivate creatives in the community, um, to a national program. Mm-hmm. So for, for you, what did that look like? Cause I, I have to think like, you know, how did you, conceive of those things and how did you push for those things as we kind of thought about creativity and the role of the arts like yeah what was that like for you well I I have always enjoyed being involved in like the creative scene or art world like when I was in college I was actually um I was very early on to like a lot of these like I remember Twitter used to text 40404 to send a tweet out and I was like blogging I got really into blogging especially doing like music reviews being in Athens Georgia and so I was always really into like going to shows or going to art stuff and like trying to help support and promote some of the things I was really excited about and so at Access that almost feel like more of a professional way to identify and support and promote some of my favorite artists and creatives and tools in which they're kind of using and working with and so in Access, in the beginning, we focus on a neighborhood, one, to start small and to then to grow out. Um, but then also, two, it was just easier to kind of like manage and like test things in a smaller area. And so doing the mural projects and working with like two or three artists within that neighborhood. But then what I ran into was I'm from Georgia. I'm not born and raised in Louisville, Kentucky. Like 
who are all the creatives? Who am I missing hmm. for us to like fund and do more projects with? And one of the ways, one of the strategies in which we thought might be helpful was I remembered that Creative Mornings in Atlanta was really big and successful and it was a great way to bring the creative community together. At the time, it didn't seem like there was an event, so to speak, that was bringing people together uh, in the creative community with a lot of different backgrounds. And so it seemed like something that we could do. I mean, there was a lot of the same people speaking at the same events within Louisville, and we thought this could be a cool way to, you know, kind of redistribute that. And so Creative Mornings became, you know, a strategy within Access, but then also its own thing in and of itself, where we were benefiting from the sense of just like the network effect of giving people a platform to share their stories and then possibly also finding people that we could fund and do really interesting projects with within Access Venture side. And so we kind of went from a neighborhood focus to like a city focus with Creative Mornings and supporting them. And then eventually it led into a national focus or a national kind of presence because of the connections we made with Creative Mornings um, and that platform kind of got us connected with Visco and Greg Lutz, which allowed us to, uh, you know, do the partnership of Visco Voices, which was our national art grant program for artists. And so that, you know, all those things kind of played into each other, built off of each other. And what the, the similar thread is, I didn't want to be the individual creator or the designer or the photographer. I wanted to be the creative whisperer. <laughs> who was identifying and finding and giving them the platform to kind of succeed and thrive. And then through that process is what I realized what I really like doing is not actually being the guy, but the guy behind the scenes kind of like connecting the dots and identifying the next thing. I actually thought in college I wanted to be a uh, manager, artist manager, music manager, because I just enjoyed that aspect yeah, of- I can see that. Yeah, being connected but not doing it. Well, and it's interesting just to kind of think about the journey, um, the lessons learned, like, okay, we've, we've done this, experienced this. And I think, the, you know, the voices effort and the collaboration with Visco um, was, pretty, was pretty interesting, um, just given the fact that I think ultimately kind of the journey that we've been on, I kind of call it a journey, is, okay, we've done these things at a hyper-local level, mm-hmm. we've worked with regional creatives, and I think really as we move towards voices and this collaboration with Visco and kind of thinking about, like, you know what, the stories or the experiences of people in communities across the country, yes, they're unique, but they're also lived and shared experiences of people everywhere. And yeah. so how do we find the best creatives that haven't yet been found? How do we, how do we surround them, almost like you said, the creative whisperer? How do we, mm-hmm. how do we help them? Uh, along their journey yeah. uh, so that we can be a, a catalyst for their growth and maturity, but then through that, tell these amazing stories uh, that help highlight and feature and, and bring to the surface uh, the experiences of communities that are just horrible, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> where I think it's important through the arts to confront people. Like I think that's one of the beautiful things about art is it's confrontational mm-hmm. uh, and you're kind of forced to kind of think about it, reconcile it, question put it, it somewhere, question it. And I think sometimes that it's just, we just let it be. And I think there's a beautiful thing to that, which is why it's always a powerful, but trying to figure out like, okay, we can do that at a hyper local level in a small community. And that's important. 
how do we do that at a city level? We're mobilizing hundreds of people to think differently about their surroundings. But then nationally, how do we identify the best and support them? Um, and then I think the other thing, too, uh, with Access Ventures that you and I have been trying to just really think about over the years is, like, what is the creative economy? Yeah, that's a great like, question. You know, it's like we've even literally done, like, video questions with people on the streets, the man on the street, the woman yeah. on the street type, like, hey, what? how would you define the creative economy? Because yeah. it's just this really squishy... Because when we started, it wasn't a thing. No. No, it wasn't. We didn't even, like, I don't, I don't even think our mission statement was, like, we support the creative economy. Like, probably over the past couple of years has creative economy and creator economy mm -hmm. start to become a thing or a term. Um, yeah, it was kind of assumed in the inclusive part, I yeah. think, a lot of times. But I think over the years, you you and I specifically have just kind of wrestled with like, no, it's it's an important element that needs to be named. Yeah. But how do you how do you define that? Yeah. You know, yeah. so I like to think it's like nailing jello to the wall. <laughs> I, some people have done some really great like articles and and talks on what is the creative and creator economy, um, but it really does feel like trying to nail Jello to the wall. Um, one, it's hard to just put a creative or a creator in a box, and to say they're just this feels too confining to me. Um, but what I, and you know, there's two different sides because I think what's always been interesting to us is we're structured, Access Ventures is structured as a 501c3 private operating foundation. And, but yet we kind of function, you know, in the venture world, but also within the philanthropic world. And so all the activities that we've kind of done have, have kind of shared that hybrid approach. Mm -hmm. And so when you get into the art world, there's the philanthropic side of the art and creative world. And then there's also like the for-profit side. And so when I think about the creative economy, that is more of the philanthropic, place-based, city-focused, uh, economic development type stuff. And then when you think of the creator economy, that tends to fall in the influencer, content creator, uh, social media type person. Uh, but they, they, they typically don't cross over very much. And I think what we're kind of doing kind of fits in the middle between those two worlds. Well, and the interesting thing, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think creators are members of the creative economy. Oh, yeah. So they're users and, and consumers of tools that, that, that expand their creativity, but they're participants in the creative economy, i.e. their local, sure. regional kind of context. And so, yep. but they need these tools. Yeah. We kind of need both and. I mean, the media just loves buzzwords. Exactly. So, I mean, right, I, I think it started as the creator economy, then it got called the passion economy, and now there, I think I even saw today, like, there's the ownership economy. Like, there's one economy, <laughs> and then we slice it up in a lot of different ways, and, you know, I don't feel too conflicted about trying to identify, you know, what type of economy is this that we kind of play in. Like, I'm more of, like, we're identifying creatives who are expressing themselves through different mediums. Um, and we want to be able to see them kind of thrive and access the same type of uh, opportunities that we see a lot of entrepreneurs and stuff have at the same time as well too, because really at the end of the day, creatives and or creators, they're creating culture. There are culture makers. They're the ones that help us process um, or question the things that are happening around us. And whether that's through art or whether that's through a 15 second TikTok video, 
they're giving us some type of glimpse into a culture, whether we're a part of or we're not a part of, to participate in. And that form of expression, I think, is just inherent to who we are as beings, is to kind of create and to, to be unique and different. And um, I think there's a lot of opportunity, especially now more than ever, where there's tools that help um, help people create more than ever to kind of like invest in that, but then also fund that and uh, to see more kind of like beauty and creative expression kind of come out into the world. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because I wholeheartedly agree. I think I think it's it's this weird this weird journey of like how much does it really matter to nuance these terms and define these things but i do think like because you know i've been a part of different conversations through the years around the creative economy and it, and i think they're important you know like i don't want to like kick them to the totally. curb because i think i think what happens though and it's good to have focus yeah but I, what i've experienced though is there's 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 a us against them and i think what i'm really kind of coming more personally to recognize that we need kind of need both and like we yeah. need we need at what's like the creative economy, like the creative places, the creative businesses, the things that make a local economy unique and distinctive. Yeah. Um, but the types of capital, the scalability, uh, the transferability, um, the things a lot of times like the venture world or the high growth world, the tech enabled world, that those aren't those aren't necessarily the things that they're thinking about. And mm-hmm. but they still need they still need a seat at the table. They still need capital. They still need creativity related to capital to support their growth, whether it's real estate or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, fundamentally, I think the thing that, that you and I have wrestled with, and which is really exciting to kind of shift to kind of what you're focused on now, yeah. is, is really kind of coming into this, this, this idea around supporting creators. Yeah. Fundamentally, at the end of the day, what can transform... Uh, the, the culture makers, these influencers that ultimately are participants in the creative economy, but themselves need better ways to do that. Yeah. Um, which is, which are tools. And so yeah. talk to me about, you know, what you're working on now as it relates. So still at access ventures, mm-hmm. still the chief creative officer, still helping us kind of craft the story around kind of our broader mission, but going from new media, at Georgia yeah. to now kind of helping run a really cool new initiative. What, what are you working on now? Yeah. So during my time at Access, you know, we kind of focused on entrepreneurs. And one of the terms we used a lot was a path to bankability or a ladder to bankability. And we, we, you know, did the microfinance and it was, it was focused on small businesses, entrepreneurs scaling up to venture. And what I started to notice is like those same problems exist for creatives and artists and creators. And I think what we're actually seeing now is these large companies like Twitter and TikTok and Snapchat, they're realizing they're, these entrepreneurs who created these platforms are realizing these platforms are only valuable if creatives and creators are creating on them. Hmm. And so they're now trying to figure out ways to help incentivize, incentivize and monetize for the creatives to continue to do the things that they're doing on these platforms. And so this path to bankability uh, for entrepreneurs, I think we're starting to see happen for creatives where it's like, how does an artist or, you know, a content creator go from making a couple of dollars on a platform to getting a bank loan, to growing their business as a creator, to getting venture money, or, you know, what does that, that ladder kind of look like? 
And so the more that I've thought about that, we've kind of done that through, if money is just a tool, we've done that through grants, you know? And we've even done that in different sizes of grants so that, that the creative and the artist can learn what it's like to create with just $500, what it's like to create with $5,000, and then what it's like to create with like $20,000. You know, they need that opportunity to figure out for themselves how to grow and to build with larger sizes of money. And then as we think about what tools they need, you know, sometimes creative businesses are more so just lifestyle businesses that, that probably don't need venture backed money, but those lifestyle businesses or those creatives, they actually need tools and products and services that help them become more efficient to do the things they do since it's typically just one or two people on those teams. And so we, we saw that as an opportunity for venture backed financing. And so we kind of, I've been working over the past year, kind of like, actually I was in New York a year ago, right as COVID like <laughs> I remember that. happened, you know, when New York shut down, I was just like standing in Times Square and there was literally no one there. <laughs> and I went up there to do meetings to talk about this fund and the possibilities of this. And so when I got back, I've basically just been working on what could, this could look like. And so you know, before creator economy be became a hype thing, um, we started focusing on, okay, let's, let's try to find tools and products and services similar to our friends at Visco. They've done a great job building that product and supporting creatives. Like, can we find more of those who at their core want to see creatives and artists and creators thrive and create the things that they love doing, um, and being able to kind of flourish from doing that. And so, yeah, we're going to start Hidden Ventures, which is kind of like a new early stage investment um, kind of firm where we're going to start trying to find early stage startups that are building these kind of products, the future of creative work, so to speak, hmm. um, to kind of help creatives do the things they do best. Well, it's interesting. I mean, it's interesting to hear you say that because I think every we talk about these things like market makers. And I think the interesting thing around like Twitter or YouTube even, you know, there's just so much noise, even Clubhouse. Like you look at like, you know, tons of users, yeah. but then like how do you sustain those users yeah. and growth into the future? And what a lot of these platforms are realizing is they they need these market makers, i.e. Yeah. These, these influencers that are generating unbelievable content that actually attract people to be on the platform mm -hmm. and sustain that growth. Uh, that's creators. Yeah. And so like giving them better tools to do that, like talk to me about like YouTube, for example, you were something saying something recently about just like the, the volume of activity on YouTube alone. Like what, oh, what yeah. does that look like for? Yeah. There was a recent survey where they were asking kids like what they wanted to be when they grow up. And, you know, typically that answer would be something like, I want to grow up and be an astronaut. <laughs> and that was one of the, the answers, but for the most part, people, kids wanted to grow up to become a YouTube star, <laughs> you know? But it's like being an NBA star now, right? It it's is. It's like 1%, like what's the, what's the statistic on That's YouTube? a great point. Like only the top 1% actually make a professional career out of being a YouTube star. And so a lot of the interest now is like, you know, I think one of the stats is like, uh, there's over 12 million people have between a thousand or 100,000 to 10,000 subscribers. Wow. And that's just at the amateur level. And then there's a million creators that have over 10,000 subscribers. And so it's just really fascinating to kind of think through like, wow, 
Like there's a lot of people who are trying to make it with a YouTube show and they're probably not pulling in any money. You know, we're on this podcast. How many people have podcasts that are probably barely bringing in enough money, typically because it benefits and incentivizes the top 1%. Hmm. And so I think now people are trying to create tools because we're moving away from having media companies that are creating all this content that we kind of consume to individuals. And so these platforms are trying to figure out how do we, how do we help the individuals that are creating this content make money so that they continue doing the things that they love doing. Um, but that's just one, in my opinion, that's just one aspect are these content creators. And so there's the other aspect of like artists and creatives who are creating work that don't necessarily fit within the business model of putting it on YouTube or Twitter. And that's why I think NFTs are having a moment is because NFTs are actually allowing uh, NFT. a non-fungible token within the blockchain kind of world are kind of having a moment where artists and creatives and designers who are creating, you know, artwork in this new medium and platform are able to, you know, profit, make money off of their work. And I feel like that's different from, you know, your content creators on Twitter or YouTube or Twitch. And I think they all need, I feel like I want to find the balance between both of those worlds mm. uh, to be able to support both um, rather than focus just on influencer creators or just on artistic creative economy stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a good moment for a kind of a cheap plug on your, your podcast. Um, yeah. Cause we can't really dive too deep into like NFTs, non-fungible tokens, but you do uh, yeah. on how you create, you, you interviewed Mason with Masari. That's right. Kind of talked about the world of NFTs. So if anybody's interested in kind of learning a little bit more about that aspect, uh, check out how you create. Yeah. The, how you create podcasts. So nice so, little plug. <laughs> hey, I try. <laughs> so I want to, so this season of more than profit, uh, really focusing on conscious construction, funds, strategies, managers, folks that are targeting really unique approaches to the deployment of capital to support mm -hmm. uh, impact, inclusion, creativity, broad buckets, but also doing so in a way that's not sacrificing returns. Yeah. So I just, I want to lay that out there because I totally. think sometimes like when we, when we get into this world of creator and creative, yeah. a lot of times people, their minds mentally check out right. on the financial returns. And it's like, great, that's the arts. That's how charity supports work. Right. So talk to me about like what you're trying to do with this strategy. Like, are you concessionary in this? Mm -hmm. Is that your goal? Are you playing into that? Like, is that, is it, is it, is it impossible to get returns? Is that what you're doing here? Yeah, no, I think like the way we've structured is definitely we want to make returns. And I think focusing on the tools and the products and the services, like we've kind of already seen most recently in the market, like creative tools are very sexy right now. Um, I think what's different for us at Hidden Ventures is we've been working with creatives for years. So what we're doing is we're taking the creative community that we've kind of been involved in and part of and the needs that we're kind of aware of that are happening. Um, and we're moving from the philanthropic grant side into the investment side and seeking returns in finding the right tools and services that want to enable creators to create, but then also thrive through using those services that we can then take back to our artists and communities and friends and creatives to use 
and to get feedback to help improve and hopefully be a big product that, you know, we have some healthy returns from. So I think for sure, we definitely want to make money off these investments, but not lose our mission of sure. supporting creatives. I think like those are the, those are the, the startups we're looking drivers. for. That's right. Yep. We want startups that are highly committed to creatives and creators um, who see them and are passionate about them and want to uh, empower them. Um, but then also have a really smart and balanced approach to how they're going to make money and scale as as a venture-backed business. And so some of the ones that we've looked at um, are actually invested in. One of them, uh, a long video, which is kind of a, a creator-specific play, um, where it's going to be like a video app where creators can actually create short-form videos and then export it as a long-form video to upload to other platforms. The main difference is being able to monetize and connect with their current, you know, Patreon subscription or referral links that they have. So it's hoping to take that idea that only the top 1% on YouTube who make money, hope, hoping to create more of a middle class of the creators hmm. so they can actually make a healthy return from the content that they're creating by giving them a more direct service to their audience hmm. um, to monetize off of. And do the things they love. And do the things they love. And so we're excited about that one. Any others that, that really kind of? Yeah. Another great one is like when you think of creatives, I think we even mentioned it in passing. Like you don't, you don't imagine them actually being good with money <laughs> or knowing how to scale their business. And so we invested in a company called Studio, which is actually working directly with um, high-performing designers, photographers, artists, and helping them become more efficient, like understanding you know, you should increase your pricing by 25% and building a community of creatives around them um, to kind of help improve. Like here are the tax implications of you kind of being a freelancer. And so if someone's like, I'm going to be a full-time creative and I want to kind of improve and then also be around a community of other professional creatives, like studios kind of built that as like the entry point to, to take it to the next level. Um, and so that's a really cool product and community uh, that I think we're really super excited about. Again, back to the core of how do we empower creatives and help them thrive? Like Studio is a great example of that. So Ben, we, you and I talk all day because we work together, yeah. which is awesome. Uh, I, I kind of want to finish off because I think one of the things that um, I'm always trying to quantify, like, okay, this is cool, but this is super squishy. Like you said, mm -hmm. jello to the wall. And someone was like, okay, how do we measure this? Like, what does this look like? Sure. And I think that there, it's a good question, but I think as I look at the creative economy, the creator economy, I'm curious from your perspective, like what, it is an exciting moment because I think there are unbelievable opportunities with these platforms to support an emerging creative economy. Mm -hmm. But what what are you concerned about? Like, as you think about like, what, what are you like, huh, you know, you know, if you if you were to do a SWOT analysis, if sure. You will, like, what would you what would you put in the camp of a threat related to kind of like as you think about this? Like, what if this doesn't happen, or if this doesn't get defined, or if, if people kind of go off the rails and and it goes this direction, it, it could it could be uh, a negative effect for what we're trying to build. Like, is there yeah. anything in that camp for you? And then, what are you really excited about? Like, mm -hmm. I have to believe, like you said a year ago, being in Times Square, yeah, and kind of trying to like start to kick the tires with different, hey, what do you think about this? I'm, I'm thinking about this. And, and what I've experienced is people are just like super jazzed and excited about what you're building. 
but I have to believe. So there's there's these things that I, I'm sure are bringing you great excitement for the future in this moment. But then there's a couple of things that you're just kind of tracking and like, I don't know. Yeah. And like, what would those be for you? I think the things that concern me with the creator economy specifically, like in that term of content creators and influencers, is that that economy really depends on individuals creating content continually to feed the beast. Hmm. So why that concerns me is if you've ever tried to like, you know, be on Instagram or TikTok or YouTube, like you feel like you constantly have to like churn out stuff to be able to like feed the beast and keep the numbers up and keep the people happy. It's a numbers game. It's a numbers game. And it was, it's really hard. You think of like a Buzzfeed or these other media companies that had to do this. Like it's a really hard business model to kind of do that. And so, but, and that's a team of people around you. Hmm. So I think for the individual, I'm concerned because there's very, a lot of focus on the influencer content creator that like it's going to churn and burn a lot of individuals. But I, I'm concerned that the, these platforms may or may not care about the churn and burn of the creator. Cause there's just one more to replace them. That's right. Yeah. You know, there's a high churn cycle of those type of people. Uh, and so that's a concern for me because I think what we don't want is this to be like a factory of creators, so to speak, where people are just creating content and, you know, creative expression, but at the end of it, they kind of like don't even want to do it anymore mm. from that aspect. Um, I think artists are ones that are actually more resilient in that way, because when you think of an artist, you are, you tend to think of an artist not making money from the work they do. <laughs> And so they've had to become a little bit tougher in trying to figure out how to make this work because they're very passionate about it and they live for it. I think that's something that the creator economy is going to have to kind of work on. So that's where I feel like sometimes the creative economy and the creator economy almost feel pitted against each other. And I wish there was a better way to demonstrate that we're more in the middle of the two. Um, but, you know, you have to use the language of the people within the environment you're in. Um, so that's like one concern that I have. I think there's so much hype right now. Um, you know, Twitter's creating opportunities for creators to create. Clubhouse is creating those. Uh, TikTok, Snapchat, like all those people are hoping these creators stay on their platforms to continue creating. And I just hope people are smart enough and figure out like if you go that route as a creator, you need to see yourself as a small business. And you need to run yourself like you need to be a part of a studio or something to help you think through how to maintain that level of living and creating. Because I've also seen individuals just burn out from having to feed the beast to maintain the sponsorships and all those different things. Um, so I think that's one concern is we'll see where we're at in five years in that aspect. Things that excite me, though, like I am excited about the blockchain NFT side because if we've learned anything in the past five months, whether it's NFT related, blockchain related, or just creator economy related, is the desire for, you know, there was direct to consumer a couple of years ago was really hot and sexy. I think now it's direct to audience is really interesting to folks. Like Substack writers can write directly to the audience that cares. There's articles being written on, you only need a thousand true fans to be a full-time creator. Um, I think that's really exciting because I remember in college having a blog and doing the Google AdWords and trying to get sponsorships and referral links like um, 
it was hard and you had to like really go the distance to try to make that work full time. And when I was in college, there was no way that could be full time. Now you could probably do that full time if you wanted to. Um, and I think that's really cool. As long as you build your audience of folks, um, or your Patreons, like there's a lot of cool ways where people are leaving their full-time jobs to do that. Uh, and I think that's really cool. And from the artist perspective, this whole blockchain NFT movement, like there's a lot of criticism and there's a lot of skepticism around if it's a bubble, but at the end of the day, at its core, what I'm most excited is like artists and creatives are getting paid through creating work. That's really exciting for them and people are buying it hmm. and we'll kind of see how it kind of shakes out. But I think we'll see, and I'm most excited about this direct to audience or creators more connected to their audience or their fans um, to the work that they're doing. And so I think that's really exciting. That's cool. Yeah. Well, I normally leave it for the outro, but <laughs> uh, because this is pretty cool and, and really, really new, uh, how can people learn more from your perspective? How can they get involved? Uh, what does that look like for Hidden Ventures and kind of the things you're trying to build? Like if somebody hears this and like, wow, that's, that's pretty rad. Like what, yeah. what can they do to, 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 do, to learn more or get involved? Yeah, well, definitely check out our website, hidden.vc, H-D-D-N.vc. That's the kind of play on hidden, <laughs> taking all <laughs> the, the vowels, vowels out. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Find us there. You can see some of our portfolio companies, learn more about the fund. Uh, and then you can contact me over email through that as well. And especially if you're early stage startups who are passionate about artists and creators, um, but then also if you're fund managers that are kind of interested in this space as well too, I mean, I will definitely jump on a phone call <laughs> with you and we'll see what's going on. But uh, I think that's really cool. I, I'm a, I love beta testing and jumping on new products. And so even if it's just me trying something new, it's really exciting. Thanks for listening to More Than Profit. And if you liked what you've heard, then do us a favor by subscribing and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Bryce Butler with Access Ventures. Check out our work at accessventures.org. Thanks for listening.